0: Romans 14, and we pick up where we left off last week. We got a, a, brief, a brief preview of the, the second principle of Christian liberty, but we really we stopped there around verse 13, having spent a couple of weeks exploring the opening uh, foundational concept in verses 1 through 12. And so let's pick it up there in verse 13 and read this next section, which is to the end of the chapter. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, which means it was happening, right? Stop what is happening. Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am and. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil." For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. For whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be, Thanks be to God. Join me again in prayer, will you? Again, gracious Father, we have assembled today on this the Lord's day for your glory, to offer to you the praises that are due, as the psalmist described with the the cymbal and the and the tambourine and the drum and the voice. With the shouting and the clapping of hands, we offer to you our praise. You're worthy of it. You are awesome. We look outside and we see and feel the rays of sunshine illuminating everything around us and warming our skin. And we cannot help but say, our God is awesome. And so, Lord, on this beautiful day that you have made, as we live on this earth that you have made, as we think with minds that you gave to us, as we reason with our heart and with our will and our spirit with your spirit, may you clarify that which is cloudy. May you clear up the confusing. May you make understandable that which is ancient and unfamiliar. Only you can do this Um, There are not eloquent words in the mouth uh, of a man, Uh, but your spirit can teach us if we would but sit at your feet. And so, awesome God, teacher, rabbi, savior, creator, father, and friend, we sit at your feet, we hold open your word, and we ask for help. So that we might live unto your glory. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Every one of my sermons uh, for the past six years and beyond is saved uh, on a cloud-based hard drive so that it cannot disappear. Every single one of them is saved under the book or subject for which it has been taught and prepared. Every one of them has a heading and, and a subheading. So this is Romans week 53, the subheading that I began at the beginning of this section, chapter 14, verse 1, this was before Easter, it says Romans 14:1 1, through 15.13. Unity and diversity, it said part one of, today says part four of, dot, 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 literally, who knows? It's right here, on the cloud. Part four of, who knows, Uh, I fully expected us to take uh, a number of weeks, more than I could really plan, uh, to grapple with this subject matter, this application of an exercise of Christian liberty, that is, non-moral preferences how we live and interact with each other, how we live in the world and how we rub shoulders, how we serve by, side by side, how we spur one another on to love and good works. Unfortunately for us, Jesus has given to us immense freedom to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling but work it out yourself. There is great and beautiful diversity, even disparity in the practical living out of the Christian faith among the church of Jesus Christ. We see very different patterns, habits, restrictions, and freedoms from culture to culture, century to century, or even church family to church family. All of those differences fall under one of two categories. Those differences are either sinful and heretical, meaning they are heresy. Heresy meaning purposefully askew. Okay, not accidental misunderstanding, but purposefully different, changing, Close, but not close. Did God really say? See, that's a heresy. Because it's close, but it's askew on purpose. That's heresy. So it's either, remember, remember the differences across centuries, cultures, continents, and even church families, the differences are either sinful and heretical or They are non-moral preferences, or we call them Christian liberties. If it's not sinful and heretical, then Paul's talking about it in this section, okay? This section, Romans 14, 1 through 15, 13, is not about the sin and the heresy It's all about the differences that are not moral. In and of themselves, they do not have clear moral boundaries. Adultery, sin, okay? What movie you absorb or don't absorb, non-moral preference. A movie that is overtly and obviously sinful, even promoting and displaying adulterous behavior, Is sinful. A movie that's benign, non moral preference. You might like it, you might not like it, you might enjoy it, you might not enjoy it, you might think it's not okay, another might think it's okay, so long as it's not obviously, clearly sinful or heretical. Now, I offer that simply as a bit of backdrop because this is what I call one of the most painfully applicable sermons I've ever written painfully applicable okay Um, I am of the type uh, I I like to teach Uh, I don't I don't like to I don't like to tell you how to how to practice it all right you and the Holy Spirit he's convicting you I'm teaching I want to get into the Greek verbs right I want to dig into the nuance of the text but if you will, the, the text of Scripture constrains me such that what we will talk about today is painfully practically applicable. It's right here, it's right on the surface. And we're living with these things day in and day out, whether we realize it or not. Now, big news came out this week. Big news. Netflix is is set to stop offering one of its most historically profitable and revolutionary products in just a few months. They are set to stop offering one of their historically most profitable and revolutionary products. Who knows what it is? DVDs. Yeah. They're going to stop mailing DVDs to their customers. Now, some of you are thinking what I thought when I first heard this news. Right? People still do that? <laughs> People are still receiving DVDs in the mail? Really? If you're over the age of probably 30, you remember the, the revolution that this was, the development of the Netflix DVD queue, right? You put all the stuff you want. I want to see this. I want to see that. One fixed price. You could watch all the movies that your heart can stomach, Right? You put your queue and you change, oh, I want to see this next, I want to have that next. And as soon as you put that envelope in the mail with the old disc, sure enough, a few days later, here comes the next one and you're off to the races. It was, it was remarkable, those iconic red envelopes showing up at your house compared to the ease or excuse me, the, the ease of that compared to the hassle of going to the local Blockbuster, Right? navigating their strange array of price points you know how many nights how many days don't you dare bring it back a day late or they're gonna hit you with a huge fee this of course you know is assuming uh, that you don't remember many of you will the old phrase please be kind rewind yeah 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 that was old VCR technology from when I was a child uh, and when many of you were already grandparents and No, it was amazing, right? But life changes. What was a revolutionary product or development a few years ago is almost laughably outdated today, especially in this hyper-industrialized age, this information and technology age. Friends, life changes quickly. But when it comes to people, community, the church of Jesus Christ, the Relevance and inspiration of God's word those things have remarkable staying power. While everything else seems to change people, community, the church and God's word they say the same. People are people. We're still bumping heads and sinning against each other, <laughs> decade after decade, century after century, even among the Church of Jesus Christ. People are people. Community is still community. We still need each other. We still bear each other's burdens and help each other out when we're in tough straits. The church is still the church. The principles and the tenets of the church have not changed. The culture has changed, but the church. God's word has undergone revisions. Used to be only a few translations. Now there's any number of them. Some are helpful, some are not. But the text of Scripture, the unadulterated actual text, it is, no matter what archaeological finding, it simply affirms what we already knew. We find a new scroll, it affirms what we already knew. We find a new archaeological piece of, you know, stone with some engraving on it. Oh, this is gonna, oh, it's gonna prove the Bible (laughs) is true all over again, exactly what we've always known. It's remarkable how, the same people, community, the church, and God's word are while everything around us is changing at a lightning pace, right? The church was struggling to find unity over non-moral issues 2,000 years ago. And as it turns out, we struggle to maintain unity around these same things today. So in an effort to curtail division over matters of liberty, Paul offers us four principles in Romans 14 and 15. I I sent them to you uh, a few weeks ago in my email. I'll offer them again. We explored the one already. Accept one another with understanding. That's verses 1 through 12. Accept one another. Embrace. Pull into yourself one another, regardless of differences, weak and strong, mature and immature. You have different levels of what you find to be acceptable, appropriate. You pull one another in close, not to argue, and with a clear sense of how and why. Accept one another. Now, we don't accept sin. We don't accept obvious, clearly defined sin, but acceptance of one another with diverse applications on non-moral preferences. Number two is the one we're exploring right now. Build one another up without offense. Build each other up seeking to not offend one another. Now again, this is all about Christian liberty, so that'll be an exciting exploration. We got a brief preview of that one last week and we'll continue today. The third one is please one another as it relates to Christian liberty, please each other the way that Christ did. Seek to contribute to the joy of one another as you exercise these Christian liberties. And then finally, the fourth one, that's, that's verses one through seven of chapter 15. Finally, the fourth one, rejoice with one another in God's plan. And that's eight through 13 of chapter 15. Four principles, four sections. Your Bible probably even breaks them down into headings. Four principles. Now, here's the big question. Ready? And it's a, it's a complex question with multiple different parts. How do we build one another up without offending while exercising a diverse application of Christian liberty? I'm going to say it again so you get a clear. There's bits to this. How, again, remember, we're exploring principle number two. How do we build one another up without offending while exercising a diverse application of Christian liberty? That's what we're set to explore today. Well, we'll start here with the question I asked myself at the beginning of my exploration of this Of the text. Number one, the question I asked myself, where to begin? Right? Where do we even start with a question like that? Well, we start at verse 13, simply this. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather, same word, judge, never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of of a brother. The the King James reads it with that same word because it's the same Greek word. Therefore, let us not judge one another, but judge not to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Decide. Make a decision, a distinction between what is good and what is bad. Choose. The scripture doesn't merely say stop judging. It says stop judging others and start judging yourself. It's almost as if Paul says there's enough sin, right? There's enough misunderstanding. uh, There's enough moment of, um, you know, omission, neglect, idleness, confusion. You've got enough of that in your own self to worry about. So start there. In fact... Again, the implication is that this is happening in the church, so quit it, right? Stop worrying, stop worrying about other people and start worrying about yourself. So where to begin? That's where, right? Eyes off of how other people are exercising their non-moral preferences Eyes on yourself and how you are exercising those non-moral preferences if you're concerned about music and theater entertainment food drink if you're concerned about these things start with yourself there's probably plenty to keep you busy for a while Instead of what your brother is eating or drinking, instead of how he interprets and exercises liberty, you worry about it yourself. Now, our Kent Hughes is a Scottish pastor. He uh, he he gives us a helpful list of some of the modern-day practical liberties where Christians come to different conclusions. And so I thought it would be helpful to share his list. It's uh, 11 things. Um. Theater or entertainment, cosmetics—that's hair and makeup, right? Some say it's sinful to have a beard, like the you know hippie drug addicts back in the day, right? Um, when like when my dad was a like when my dad was a young man, the church was saying all those hippies and their beards—that's sinful, right? Um, now some today would say if you don't have a beard, that's sinful. Right? So having a beard is sin. Not having a beard is sin. Right? You, if you take the Jewish tack, um, uh, there are certain parts of their hair they're not supposed to cut. Right? But then also, long hair on a man is an abomination. So don't cut your hair, but cut your hair. You see? Right? So theater, cosmetics. Then, of course, the obvious one alcohol always comes up in matters of Christian liberty. Tobacco. Playing cards. This is a big one. When I was a kid, it was just, it was talked about, joked about dancing. The whole thing is Baptists don't dance. I mean, this is so pervasive. I was at a concert like a week ago, and there was a joke about, if you're Baptist, you know, you might not want to dance during this part, but everybody else, you can cut loose. You know what I mean? Like, what? It's a big thing, dancing. Uh, Actually, um, so Elvis Presley... Right, Elvis Presley, was, um, he was like the biggest rock star of his age. He kind of almost like invented rock stardom, practically, right? Um, his early performances on television, um, they would not broadcast from like his torso down. It was too scandalous for the American public to be forced to see a man's hips gyrating from side to side. Now, first of all, let me say this, I wish we had such convictions today about what goes on television, okay? But it also shows just how quickly, you know, uh, you know the, the, the sliding scale of the moral spectrum changes when there is no absolutes, it's just what you feel, right? Now, of course, it's like there's no limits, all right? But dancing was a big, a big thing. Then there's fashion, You know, Uh, even today, right now, there are Christians, you know, probably within a stone's throw that if, uh, if our young women aren't wearing skirts to their ankles, if they're wearing pants, that's sin, right? So fashion's a big one. What Bible translation you use? in the church, amazing, the division. When I was interviewing for the position here at Hillcrest, I came in with my, my English standard version, the ESV Bible. And when asked the question, I turned to a scripture and I read it from the ESV. And one of the gentlemen um, on, the, on the committee, he said, what translation is that? I said, oh, it's the ESV. He said, well, you're not gonna get very far in the Baptist church without a King James. You're not gonna, I don't know about that, right? He was very put off by the fact that I was reading something other than the King James Version. Um, He wasn't spiteful about it. He was just convinced of it, right? I shared with him a couple of quotes from presidents of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary about the ESV endorsing it, and that was enough to, you know, appease him. And he was perfectly friendly, and he was a perfect gentleman. Um, But he was convinced there was something only write about the King James, and that this version is an anathema, right? It happens. Three more, sports, music, and material wealth. Sports, music, and material wealth. Now, this I find to be a helpful little list to just glance over, because um, we might not be judging others, condemning others, questioning the salvation of others based on what food they eat, right do they eat pork or don't they eat pork i made barbecue this weekend it was delicious right right we're not judging each other because someone got meat from the butcher shop that is also an idol worship temple that's just not happening here today right but these things are fashion and bible translation and our relationship with sports and music and material wealth and the other things Those things are certainly constant points of division when it comes to Christian liberty. Tobacco was the big one when I was growing up. Tobacco and alcohol. If you smoke, if you drink, you're going to hell. Now, little did I know as an eight-year-old boy when I was told this that one of the great theologians of modern Christianity, C.S. Lewis, would rarely be seen without a cigar or a pipe. Little did I know that the author of many of our most beloved hymns and a stalwart of the Protestant Reformation would meet up with his buddies at the pub and they would down a few pints as they debate theology. That's Martin Luther. So Paul clears this up for us, right? As opposed to making, calling sin, calling things sinful that are not in and of themselves sinful, Paul clears it up for us in verse 14. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Okay, that's clear. Okay, so nothing in and of itself is unclean. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Oh, well, great. Okay, well, I'm back to being confused, right? Thanks for nothing, Paul. This is why Peter, in his letter, uh, he says, Paul says some confusing things. right. Paul talks about some hard stuff, right? And I like Peter, just like, he's just like a fisherman. He's just like a dude, you know? He's like, like, Paul's getting complicated over there with some deep stuff. You guys have fun. Look, all right, let's just keep it real simple. Hammer, nail, hit, right? He clears it up. Now, while that statement in and of itself does seem to lend to some confusion and cloudiness, it's actually helpful, Paul says, nothing in and of itself is unclean or sinful, but your conscience and your past can make it unclean for you. Off limits. And here's how. This is fascinating, so I really want us to hone in on this. Something can be morally permissible, but you can be convinced in your own mind that it's not for a number of reasons, which we'll explore in a moment. You can be convinced in your mind that it's not morally permissible. And Paul says, if you are convinced in your conscience that something is off-limits for the Christian and you partake of it anyway, now you're sinning. In fact, you are deliberately transgressing against your own convictions. Therefore, you're doing what you know you ought not to do for you therefore it is sin meanwhile the whole time the act in and of itself is not sinful that's fascinating isn't it because we're not talking about some kind of psychological theory mumbo jumbo we're talking about the actual text of scripture that gets deep into the recesses of our subconscious mind it's Fascinating. Now, to put a pin on this, to make it real clear for us, let me use an example, a simple one. I need to remind you, we're not talking about obvious sin that is forbidden in the text of Scripture. We are talking about non-moral preferences. So keep that clear. We'll use alcohol as an example because it's relatable, it's easy, and it's rife with potential downfall. Okay? If you are convinced that for you, any alcoholic consumption is sin... And again, there are a number of reasons why you might come to that conclusion. But you're at a gathering, everyone else is indulging, and you don't wanna be the only one who's sort of standing out. You don't wanna be a prude, or you don't wanna be sort of out of the mix. Maybe your Christian brother even is partaking, and he offers you one. And so in the moment you squash those convictions that for you, any consumption is sin, you put that down and you partake. For you, because of your convictions, that is sin. Meanwhile, for your brother, it's not sin. Now, your brother has a new issue. Right? What's that? Well, he caused you to stumble, but we'll get to that later. You ignored your own conviction, and ignoring a held conviction is a willful sin. Remarkable, right? The act in and of itself isn't sinful. It's the ignoring of the conviction of your conscience that is sinful. Isn't that fun? Paul says some hard stuff. Now it's great. Nothing in and of itself is sinful, it's what we do with it and our own conscience. Now, there are a few reasons why someone might come to a strict conviction about something like alcohol. Number one, the newness of their faith. There is simply a a faith maturity that has not been achieved to the point that they simply associate in a very binary way alcohol with sin and parties and lewdness and debauchery. And so in their mind, in the the very newness of their faith, they cannot separate one from the other. That's one reason. Another reason is, is perhaps you had an addiction to something before Christ. And so in your mind, I, I cannot, it, it, they, they might can, but I can't. Because I, I'll let one sip and I'm off. Maybe you abused something in your past. And so you cannot distinguish between the abuses and the enjoyment of something as a liberty. Or just simply, you are convinced that it's wrong. Maybe you've been taught wrongly, and you're convinced that it's wrong, so again, for you, it's wrong. You're convinced wrongly, but your being convinced makes it wrong for you. (laughs) Right? But you see, this is genuine. This isn't psychobabble. This is what Paul says in verse 14. Now, This is the banner over this second principle. Build one another up without offending. In order to put this into practice, we must first understand and acknowledge that it is possible for one Christian to partake in something neutral and it not be sin, while another Christian to do so is sin. We have to settle that in our minds. It's very possible. For one Christian to participate in something neutral can be not sin, while another Christian to do so is sin, because of that, the violation of their own conscience. Not four things. Not because of moving goalposts, right? The idea of, well, uh, 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 yesterday, today, me, you, different standards for different folks. No, not moving goalposts. Not subjective morality. Well, it used to be right? Adultery used to be a sin, but these days, I mean, come on. No, that's subjective morality. That's morality moving with the culture. No, not because of that. So not because of moving goalposts. not because of subjective morality, not because your truth, my truth, what's okay for you is good for you, but what's okay for me is good for me, right? That bus that's speeding toward us at 55 miles per hour, for you, that's made of metal, and you have to jump out of the way. For me, it's made of air, Your truth, my truth. Well, guess what? Reality comes, doesn't it? So so that doesn't work. Not your truth, my truth. Not moving goalposts. Not subjective morality. Not because of competing interpretations of Scripture. Well, that's just your interpretation of Scripture. No. There's one interpretation. Even as there is a plethora, a myriad applications. There's one appropriate interpretation. It means exactly what the author said. And nothing else. So it's not your interpretation of Scripture or my interpretation of Scripture. That's just bad hermeneutics. It is because of the tension that is explained in verse 14. It's tension. And it's a tension that has to be managed. It's not a problem to solve, it's tension to manage. If to you it is sin, then it is to, to violate your conviction. Then for you, it is sin. Now, with this tension, number two, next question, what are the limitations? We have this liberty, we have this, this, this almost dichotomy of application when it comes to non-moral preferences. What are the limitations on that? This is, if, I, if you will, the practical nuts and bolts, Let me see, one, two, three, four, five, four, yeah, yeah, four of them, okay? Our our liberties are to be exercised, number one, not for the stumbling of others, okay? So what are the limitations? What are the guardrails? If you cause your brother to stumble, now you're sinning. He's sinning because this neutral thing violates his conscience. You're sinning because you compelled him or you influenced him. You allowed him by your example to violate his conscience. The thing is neutral. To partake of it for you is not sin. To partake of it for him is sin. For you to influence him to take, partake of it is now sin for you. It's not that complicated. It's not complicated. Our liberties are to be exercised not for the stumbling of others. 1 Corinthians 8, 9. Paul, uh, he reinforces this in another letter. He says, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. This, he says, right after saying, an idol is nothing, so food offered to an idol is nothing. Therefore, that equation makes it, well, just food. But he says, but, but, it's just food. But. Don't have that freedom become a stumbling block to the weak. Take care. And that's a that's a, again, that's an active, ongoing verb. In 1 Corinthians 8 9, take care. That means in perpetu in, in perpetuity, you are to actively concern yourself with this. They're not, you are. This is what I, we talked about at the very, very beginning. You got enough to worry about with how you exercise your liberty than to be worried about how your brother exercises his liberty. You take care that the exercise of your liberty does not compel or influence someone else to stumble. So our liberties are to be exercised not for the stumbling of others. And what happens is as we begin to explore these, almost like the guardrails that were way out here, they begin to come in like this. Right? And now the exercise of Christian liberty is right here. It's right here. It's not out here. It's here. And in week one of this series, it was like Christian liberty. Don't judge. Don't judge. And as we go through and we continue to explore, it kind of comes in like this. Okay? So it's not for the stumbling of others. Number two, it's not to cover up sin. 1 Peter 2.16 Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Did you have any idea that there was so much discussion about Christian liberty and freedom all through the text of the New Testament? It's all over the place. 1 Corinthians, Romans, 1 Peter... Live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. You can abuse Christian liberty to the point of sin and evil. You're free to eat, not unto gluttony. You're free to drink, not unto drunkenness. You're free to enjoy entertainment, not free to idleness and laziness, or to take in that which is unclean. I will, what does what the psalmist say? I will set no worthless or unclean thing before my eyes. You're free to enjoy entertainment until it violates this law. You see, what's going on behind the scenes in the early church, freedom in Christ was being used as a get-out-of-jail-free card played at will by Christians who simply wanted to continue to live in sinful self-indulgence. Don't tell me that's sinful. That's my liberty. No, you're off the rails, pal. It's funny. People don't change. We do the same stupid thing today. And my kids go, oh, Dad. But I'm saying it, I use the word for what it means. It means absolute ignorant blindness and willfully so. We do the same stuff today. You abuse freedom to the point of sinful indulgence and say, Hey, don't judge me. I'm free in Christ. Now you're violating 1 Peter two sixteen. You're using it as a cover-up for sin. When an exercise of liberty inadvertently or purposefully violates a Christian ethic, it is not liberty, it is self-deception. Self-deception. Number three, it's not for destruction. It's not for stumbling others, it's not for the covering up of sin, it's not for destruction. What do I mean? 1 Corinthians 6, 12. Paul says, all things are lawful for me. I'm free, but not all things are helpful. Or in the King James, profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. When it destroys you, it's no longer a liberty, it's self-destruction. You have self-deception, now you have self-destruction. See, friends, there's nothing inherently evil or sinful about grapes, about the fermentation process, or even a little wine. Paul says to Timothy, a little wine is good for the stomach. Apparently, a little wine is good for the heart. But when you have so much, so often that it destroys you and destroys your health, limiting your capacity to serve God's kingdom, shortening your lifespan. In fact, the regular consumption of alcohol has been proven to damage your brain cells permanently. It it actually makes you dumb. Not just in the moment, it has... Lasting effects. It, it inhibits your capacity to live under the purposes of God. It's self-destruction. Our liberties are not for self-destruction. There's nothing inherently evil about the tobacco leaf. But when you inhale the smoke or even ingest the product in your mouth to the point of cancerous and harmful self-destruction, you violated the law of not all things are profitable. Lawful, but not Profitable. Not helpful. In fact, harmful. How many more years might you have had to serve God's kingdom with the strength that He gave you, the breath in your lungs that He miraculously breathed into you, had you not taken and taken and taken to the point of self destruction? See, all things are lawful. Not all things are helpful. So the guardrails come in. See? For our good and for God's glory. Nothing in and of itself is immoral and evil. God created the world and saw it was good, very good, in fact. But what depraved man does with God's creation is another story. And while Jesus says it rightly, it's not what goes in the man that defiles him, but what comes out. If what goes in destroys you, when what is enjoyed too much wrecks you, well, now you have a new problem. 1 Corinthians six twelve. That's the problem. So Christianity is not a cloak for sin. It's not for destruction. It's not for the stumbling of others. Fourthly, it's not for bondage or vice. I told you guys, this is painfully applicable. I want to parse Greek verbs with you all day. This is right here, friends. It's right here. Low-hanging fruit. Same verse, 1 Corinthians 6.12, second half. Paul says, uh, again, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So it's not for bondage. Christian liberty is to be exercised not unto vice or bondage. When it has hold over you, you must have it. I must exercise my liberty. Watch out. It is bondage, not liberty. All right. A big thing used to be soap operas. I don't know if they're still all my children, one life to live. Anybody? Yeah? Before the, the advent of cloud-based streaming DVR technology, when you can pretty much watch anything at any time... The soap operas came on, and they went off. And if you weren't home to catch your stories, as like my grandma used to call them, got to watch my stories, right? You missed that episode. You don't know what's going on. Damien cheated on Erica. You know what I mean? How did he get in jail? Well, he got arrested last week when you were stuck in traffic and you were cursing everyone around you with the Jesus loves you sticker on the back of your car, right? You're making me miss my stories. So, who is God? Right? You're free to enjoy the stories of the soap opera, but not when it becomes bondage and vice, to the point that by not having it, you explode in sinful just, you know, like a pimple, right? (laughs) It's my favorite analogy. It works every time. Sporting events, right? Food and drink. This is one of the benefits of fasting, friends. Fasting from food, fasting from entertainment, fasting from your smartphone. It's one of my favorite things about going up to my in-law's place in the mountains. There's no cell reception. It's incredibly frustrating. And then sometimes I wind up, I just turn it off. I can't use it, and then man. It's good. You realize how much you're you know but fasting fasting you put it on yourself you take control of your cravings and by taking control of your cravings and putting them under your own submission you find out who's really in charge when your liberties are used unto vice and bondage they are your god but the fruit of the spirit is what love joy peace patience kindness gentleness goodness faithfulness and self-control now, I've had one pastor tell me, one, it was a professor of mine, he says, it's interesting the list, isn't it? Love at the beginning. Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Love at the beginning, and then self-control at the end. Almost kind of like they're all birthed out of love, the chief aim. Love God and love man. The greatest commandment. They're birthed, all of these, the fruit of the Spirit. And they're all, if you will, wrapped up, held together by self control. Can you really be gentle if you don't have any self control? Can you really be kind if you have no self control? You see, self control, it's like the, it's like almost like the key issue when it comes to matters of Christian liberty. Who's really in charge? Is it you or is it your cravings? If you must watch that sporting event, sports are in charge, not the Holy Spirit. Not just that it must be watched, but let's say you got the game on and one of your kids accidentally sits on the remote, changing the channel at a crucial moment in the game. This doesn't sound like something that's happened to me, has it? Uh, you missed it, right? What happened? By the time you get back, something's happened. We're at a commercial break and you're looking at your child like you could strangle them and just, you know, throw them out the, you know, Right? Now you're yelling, you're angry, you're frantic. Is this really the exercise of Christian liberty to enjoy a sporting event? Is it though? Or is it something's being revealed about who your God really is? Your cravings, your entertainment. This is an obsession that's taken over you. You punted all sense of, of of moral obligation to model the love of the father of all to your son because of a sports game. Right? And here it goes from what? Liberty to sin. Just like that. See, the guardrails are coming in. If you must, if you must, if you must, they are your God. If you must eat, must drink, can't go a day without it, can't miss a meal, who's really in charge? You are the Holy Spirit. Your bodily cravings or your Savior. And that's why we left with this quote last week, for Sinclair Ferguson, the Christian who has to exercise his or her liberty is in bondage to the very thing he or she insists on doing. Well, that brings us to the concluding point, which I'll just summarize for time. Uh, what's the point? Right? Where do we begin? What are the limitations? What's the point? Well, this whole section is not a section on Christian liberty. You understand something, friends. This is a chapter and a half, a giant portion of Romans. It's not about Christian liberty. Who knows what it's about? Boy, I gave you the clue, like the Easter egg at the beginning of the sermon. What is the title? Unity and Diversity, Part 4 of Who Knows. This section is about the unity of the saints. It's not about Christian liberty. Christian liberty is just where we crush unity. As we exercise it to our own fault, now there's sin in our midst. As we exercise it under the stumbling of others, now we're sinning against our brother. As we exercise liberty and look down on those who can't, and as others watch you exercise your liberty and condemn you for doing so. See, the passage is about the unity of the saints. It's not about liberty. This isn't Paul's treatise on Christian liberty. It's Paul's treatise on unity and the way that the exercise of Christian liberty discarded unity in the church and has the potential to do so again today. Paul is not concerned about the free exercise of your liberty. He is concerned about the unity of the saints because Jesus was concerned about the unity of the saints. At the very beginning of this, we looked at the high priestly prayer of Jesus weeks ago. What did he say? Father, may they be one. as I'm in you and you are in me, may they be in you and you in them and they unto one another. May they be unified, as unified as is the Godhead. One of the most mysterious points of theology in all of Christian doctrine, the understanding and the study of the three persons of the one God. And Jesus said, to the extent that you and I are one, Father, may they be one. That's some, right, right? That's some closeness right there. That's the point. Well, we'll pause there, friends. Let us just remember simply this. When Jesus bled and died at the cross of Calvary, he did not do so for the sake of your movies. He didn't do so for the sake of your tobacco or your sporting events or your beard or your not beard When Jesus bled and died, he did so to rescue your soul from eternal separation from your maker unto torment and tragedy of the highest order. See, when we get this upside down, and start making the christian life all about our preferences we kick the cross to the curb friends jesus died so that we would be one with him and with each other and so as we continue to explore this passage on the liberties of a christian let us remember that the the most precious blood in history was shed it was poured out as an offering before the Lord to save us and to rescue us. Therefore, there is nothing that he asks of us that is too high a price. Yeah? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for, again, your word. Your word which has been preserved. It has been kept through time and history, so that when we come to it, we have a reliable, authenticated, sure source to read and to hear your voice. Do you want to hear the voice of God? (laughs) Read your word. It's right there. Thank you for your word. Help us, even as we leave this place and, and digest and stew on that which we have been taught, Help us to internalize it, to understand it, and to put it into practice with the chief aim of loving one another and valuing the most precious gift ever given, the blood of Christ shed for me. Help us to that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand for one last song, friends.